0: You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 6th of December, 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Daniel Bage. On today's show, as Mexico's new president begins his first term this week, we'll be discussing what challenges lie ahead for the man known simply as AMLO. My guests Victor Bulmer-Thomas and James Boyes will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including...
1: I said, Dad, I love you and you've been a wonderful father. And the last words he would ever say on earth were, I love you too. To us, he was close to perfect, but not totally perfect. His short
0: game was lousy. <laughs> the legacy of George H.W. Bush. And we'll be asking whether those who followed him into the Oval Office can find a way to get along on a personal or political level. We'll also be talking about the latest from the COP24 Climate Change Summit in Poland and in learning that Luxembourg is making all of its public transport free to use we ask whether the plan could work elsewhere across the globe. That's all to come on Midori House here with me Daniel Beach. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Victor Bulmer-Thomas, associate fellow in the America's program at Chatham House, and James Boyce, U.S. policy analyst and author of Clinton's War on Terror. Welcome, gentlemen, both to the program. We begin tonight in Mexico, where recently elected President Andres Manuel López Obrador, also known as AMLO, as we heard off the top, officially took office at the beginning of this week. The challenges that lie ahead for the country's new leader are daunting, from modernizing infrastructure to challenging corruption in Mexico's much-storied crime card which have claimed the lives of an estimated 250,000 people in the past decade alone. There's also the not insubstantial matter of Mexico's immediate neighbor, the U.S. Can AMLO make peace with Donald Trump, who is fiercely critical of the nation while also keeping his own people happy as well? Victor, perhaps we'll start with you here. Tell us a little bit about AMLO. He's self-styled as a bit of a man of the people, but he's been ruthless as well in his career. What's his political journey been like?
2: Very interesting one. Uh, He's from Tabasco, which is uh, uh, a a state in the southeast, and uh, he joined the PRI, the dominant uh, party for so many years, uh, as is natural for any ambitious uh, politician. But he was one of the first to jump ship when this uh, new party, the PRD, was formed in 1989. Uh, He then fell out with um, His fellow leftists in that party and formed his own party, Morena, uh, in the run-up to the last election. So he's very much his own man uh, going into this presidency and doesn't rely, if you like, on the support of any particular political party institution other than his
0: own, which he clearly dominates. Mm. Uh, James, we listed a few of the challenges facing the new president in the intro there, but uh, that's a global perspective, I guess. Uh, what are we thinking that ordinary Mexicans want to see uh, happen domestically off the bat? Well, I would imagine that, uh, uh,
1: like most people, uh, what Mexicans are going to want is, uh, is, uh, is, a, is, a, is a way of life that uh, doesn't involve uh, uh, risks their own uh, their own uh, mortality. Quite frankly, when you look at uh, uh, the uh, the violence that uh, has been ensuing in Mexico, uh, and a lot of which, of course, Donald Trump has made a great uh, deal out of during mm. his time as president, trying to uh, deliver uh, issues to do with uh, safety and security. And you look at what it is that uh, the new president is looking at doing here in Mexico, uh, for example, uh, uh, changing issues to do with how uh, uh, the nation is uh, is governed with regard to uh, national security. Mm. I think that's uh, certainly uh, an important step to take. Uh,
0: Victor, he's got a, a very strong majority in government uh, holding both houses of Congress I- in Mexico. Will this be a useful position in, in tackling those things like cl- crime and, and also corruption?
2: Yes, I think on corruption, he, he's going to lead by example, and that's important. Uh, clearly, uh, corruption is much more widespread than just the problem of the uh, drug cartels. And he's made it clear that this is a key issue for him, and it was one of the main reasons why people voted for him. And I think he can do a lot in that area, actually. Tackling the drugs trade, of course, is much more difficult. And this uh, plan to introduce a national guard merging the the army and the police is uh, is is clearly a tricky one. it It may work, it may not. it's it's a step into the unknown. But um just in itself, it isn't going to solve the problem. so it's it's going to have, if the progress is going to have to be made, it's going to be have to be tackled on a whole number of fronts, just on the question of violence, just briefly uh, uh, it's uh, me- Mexico is a violent place in terms of national statistics, but actually the violence is highly concentrated in a relatively small number of states. There are some states like Quintana Roo or Yucatan in the southeast, which are very peaceful actually mm. so um If he can, uh, as it were, narrow the problem to an even smaller set of states, he'll be making tremendous progress.
0: And is he getting any good reception from from the leaders of those different states on on how to tackle that problem immediately? Well, in Mexico, the political culture is that you look to the person in
2: power. And Hmm. so they will work closely with him. Uh, Ideology is not really an issue here. So if they think that by working with him they can get more resources for their state,
0: uh, they will do so. Mm -hmm. Uh, James, uh, AMLO's been noted for perhaps not caring about the technicalities of government, as it were, uh, putting the future of Mexico's new multi-billion dollar airport, for example, to a referendum with the public, which uh, got the project shelved. Uh, You know, is this a responsible way to govern? He, He says he would like more referendums like this.
1: Well, as we've seen in this country, (laughs) I don't need to finish that sentence, do I? Um, I think one of the challenges here is that whenever you get a leader coming in promising great change Mm. uh, and with a groundswell of support that we've clearly seen here. that's that's all well and good, uh, but we've seen leaders all around the world in uh, both north and south of the uh, the, the border, uh, as well as here in the United Kingdom, promising change, and then what they find it's very very difficult to deliver upon. Because um, talking about scrapping an, uh, an airport, devia development, uh, increasing pensions, legalising marijuana, all these plans, for example, um, you know they they sound great on paper, but when you actually try to get these things through most uh, legislative branches, for example, you come up against uh, uh, bureaucracy credit resistance um, and which of course then ends up leading to um, issues to do with disillusionment uh, in the elected official so it will be fascinating to see whether he is able to buck the trend and, and to deliver uh, what Barack Obama famously said change we can believe in mm. Donald Trump of course has done something similar north of the border talking about trying to implement great change there he's talking about this uh, investment uh, plan which so far hasn't seen the light of day uh, as Donald Trump has found with the, ball, the with the wall for example it's a lot easier to talk these things than it is to actually implement them and get them built.
0: Mm. Well, on that, perhaps, uh, Victor Amlo and Donald Trump have exchanged unexpectedly warm messages. Is this because they're both uh, big personalities, or is this a, just a nice little show as the as the new president takes office?
2: Well, I think they'll be very cautious of each other, or at least certainly Amlo will be very cautious of mm. Trump. Nonetheless, uh, I don't expect the honeymoon between Amlo and Trump to break down as quickly as between AMLO and large sections of uh, Mexican society, funnily enough. Mm. I think that, uh, although it will eventually break down, uh, for reasons that I might come to later, uh, there's so much uh, that they have uh, common interests on, in terms of... um, Uh, uh, reducing the flow of migrants uh, that cross the border from Mexico into the United States. Interestingly enough, of course, it's not really Mexicans going to the United States. It's people from south of Mexico. And AMLO doesn't really want them in Mexico either. So they have a common interest in trying to do something on the southern side. side of Mexico to make it less likely that m- migrants from those very violent countries like El Salvador, Honduras,
0: and mm-hmm. Guatemala will not head further north. Do you think that will be a point of contention within uh, Mexico or indeed with the relationship with Washington that where um, AMLO is pressured then to keep some of those migrants uh, from crossing the border? Uh, I can see tensions, but I don't see that as causing the breakdown of the relationship.
2: i is the most radical president in Mexico since Cautemus Cardenas in the 1930s. And it's interesting that what caused a real rupture in the relationship with the U.S. in the 1930s was when Cardenas nationalized the oil industry. Mm. Uh, which, of course, is still nationalized. Now, I could imagine, uh, further down the road, a situation where AMLO, for one reason or another, decides to intervene or nationalize or expropriate some U.S. assets, and that could be uh, a cause of big tensions. Uh, but he would stand his ground for sure, just as Cardinist is in the 30s.
0: Well, certainly on the on the topic of, of his sort of leftist background, uh, you know, there could be big divides in the country as well, where uh, some yearn uh, for the days of the past and a strong national self-sufficiency, others, you know, in, in a more modern mindset, realizing the government is either, you know, a small player in growing the country or or, or maybe one that interferes, James. Would you take that up? It's it's entirely possible. Um, I'd be honest. My my expertise on internal
1: mm. Mexican politics is uh, is not anything uh, comparable to. Uh uh, to Victor's, but certainly, uh, I think that uh, when you consider uh, how, for example, um, Donald Trump's relationships with other nations have uh, have fallen down uh, quite dramatically, uh, one wonders, quite frankly, how long this uh, relationship is going to last. Mm. Uh, and the the bonhomie, perhaps, uh, when we think about how uh, uh, people like Macron, for example, came in and uh, uh, t- tried to be like the uh, the Trump whisper, for example, and, yeah. and that seems to have collapsed. And the uh, relationships north of the border uh, with. Uh, uh, with Trudeau for example so I think that the the greatest challenge here is trying to hold together that uh, that alliance between Mexico, uh, Canada and, and the United States mm. uh, and uh, when you see how it is that Trump seems to be making up policy on the fly um, it seems very clear I think that uh, uh, leaders even who have tried to uh, uh, appease Donald Trump have uh, fallen uh, foul of his uh, uh, rather bizarre um, uh, fits of temper on Twitter amongst other p- platforms so uh, quite where this relationship is going to go uh, internally or externally i think
0: he's, he's very difficult mm-hmm. to tell at this point well you are listening to midori house here with me daniel bates james boys and victor bulmer thomas uh, coming up next a look at the life and the passing of george hw bush sunday brunch is growing up as it gets a new permanent home at monocle 24. you can continue to get your sunday off to a great start as we visit cultural highlights from across london Get your must-read of the weekend and try some foodie tips from those in the know. So start with the basics. Start cooking. Plus in-depth analysis of the weekend papers and discussions between leading figures in the art world.
1: Digital aspects and internet changed the way we operate in a big way, and they've opened us up much more to the global market and global industries than we've ever had in the past.
0: So, what are you waiting for? Go and subscribe for free to get the episode every week automatically, or join us live from 10 a.m. every Sunday. Welcome back. Still with me, James Boyes and Victor Bulmer-Thomas. Yesterday, the funeral of former U.S. President George H.W. Bush took place at the Washington National Cathedral in the nation's capital. Bush died last week at the age of 94. In attendance at the ceremony yesterday were four other former U.S. leaders, George W. Bush, uh, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, and Jimmy Carter. Quite interesting to see five uh, presidents in the same room, uh, sort of something we may not have seen in years past. Uh, The current president there, of course, Donald Trump. Obviously, an occasion at which personal and political difference should be put to one side, but that hasn't stopped analysts picking up on some of the uncomfortable body language uh, coming from the front pew. Uh, James, uh, what, did, what was your take on, on watching that unfold? Yesterday? Yeah, I just,
1: I just flew back in from Boston last night, so I was able to get a quite a good ringside seat of it over there and seeing how it was playing out Um, it's quite remarkable it really is uh, the passing of a a political generation Uh, when you think about uh, the life of George H.W. Bush whatever one uh, makes of his personal politics uh, he was in many ways the most qualified American president in US history Um, the guy had uh, headed up the CIA he'd been uh, the chief emissary to China shortly before they restored full diplomatic ties a member of Congress uh, vice president Um, head of the Republican National Committee. Uh, When you see his resume, it was quite a remarkable um, life that he had led and one that I think was being reflected upon. Uh, It's notable, I think, that Donald Trump has become the first uh, president uh, since Lyndon Johnson died not to be asked to eulogize a Mm. sitting president at that point. I think that gives you an indication about... The, the the massive divide that he creates, not only within the United States and amongst Democrats, but amongst Republicans as well. Here, after all, is a Republican president who has passed uh, under a Republican administration. Uh, even when Richard Nixon died, Bill Clinton, who was president at that point, mm. delivered a, a very um, uh, interesting and, and poignant uh, uh, eulogy, despite the fact that Bill Clinton and, and had been involved in the uh, the process to uh, unseat him through the impeachment, and his, his future wife was indeed uh, on that uh, as well. So uh, when you saw the body language, uh, as you rightly point out, mm-hmm. uh, amongst the other past presidents, uh, they seemed to be getting on pretty well uh, until Donald Trump <laughs> arrived uh, and appeared to throw a, a bucket of cold water over everything. And uh, it was nice to see I think Melania making an effort, but uh, quite frankly this president I think needs a lot to be desired uh, when you can see how past presidents have made a distinct effort to get mm-hmm. along in that unique club, uh, Donald Trump I think is going to be excluded both uh, both in office and eventually when he leaves.
0: Uh, Victor, Donald Trump shook hands with Barack and Michelle Obama. Uh, was this just because he was next to them? Is this a, a courtesy? It's not the first time he's he's had a sort of awkward experience at a, a big Washington funeral recently at all.
2: No, and of course... Um Uh, President Trump is used to doing things differently so the fact that he wasn't asked to give the eulogy may not particularly bother him. Well, at
0: least he was invited this time though. Is Uh, that something... Yes, he was invited. That's a good point. In fact, uh, uh, uh,
2: the younger Bush made a point of uh, specifically asking Mm. that he should be there. Uh, Okay, I mean, it's it's, uh, a little bit embarrassing when you see that body language particularly between Hillary Clinton and, and President Trump but Um, The fact is that each of these presidents has had to work with perhaps even more difficult characters uh, while they've been in office in their own party or in Mm. Congress or whatever it is. So they're they're used to these kind of awkward situations, and we've seen it here in the UK as well. I thought it went off okay, actually, under the circumstances.
0: Mm. We're we're looking at the the legacy of George H.W. Bush and have George W. Bush up there who's, you know, his reputation has come around in recent years, especially with Trump in office now. Uh, how did you see, uh, you know, specifically uh, the relationship with with Trump and the Bushes and and even the Clintons? How did you how have you seen that played out?
1: I think what's fascinating is that the further one gets from George H.W. Bush's presidency, the better it looks, quite Mm -hmm. frankly. Um, There was, don't forget, not a lot of, there was no great disdain for him and his presidency in Europe in 1992, and I think actually quite the reverse. A lot of people in Europe were quite uh, concerned about Bill Clinton being an untried, untested governor from a very small, poor state at that point. Now, let's be honest, Bill Clinton did all right as president in many, many uh, ways, notwithstanding some of his uh, uh, personal uh, activity. But I think the way in which uh, we've seen uh, the presidency play out and, and get borne out after George Bush left uh, the White House, um, the way in which his legacy has been built upon, um, the idea that Bill, uh, what George Bush did in many ways was of great importance with the national security architecture in the United States, for example. Mm. He redesigned how the National Security Council would be established, and that has effectively stayed in place uh, ever since. His use of uh, what Madeleine Albright later referred to as salt assertive multilateralism to try and drive uh, UN operations with a US-led mandate but not necessarily uh, uh, having US uh, uh, personnel take the lead on every initiative was certainly something which was, was attempted under Bill Clinton mm. um, and should in many ways have been a bipartisan approach moving forward. It's just unfortunate I think that the Republican Party that George Bush uh, led into office in 1988 uh, and he's an oracle in 1999, 1989 doesn't exist anymore quite mm. frankly. That concept of internationalism Um, that he is the uh, the final hurrah from the World War Two generation I think has diminished and he was replaced effectively by the likes of Newt Gingrich for example Uh, I think you can start to see uh, the move towards the Republican Party as personified now by by Donald Trump as early frankly uh, as 1992 when George Bush was seeking re-election and the likes of Pat Buchanan for example came wrong and started talking about culture wars Mm. and the rise of Newt Gingrich for example so you know Donald Trump didn't happen overnight um his was a, a presidency which in many ways has its roots in the ending of the George H.W. Bush era, I think. Mm. Uh,
0: Victor, in, with the Republicans uh, you sort of fractured, I guess, under Donald Trump uh, and looking for, uh, as, as we heard, you know, they're not the same party as they used to be. But if they're looking for a new narrative, a new, a new cause, uh, what is the role of those, those presidents of, you know, days of old?
2: Oh, I think very limited. Mm. I think uh, there's a real rupture. Uh, And in fact, uh, what's interesting is how old-fashioned there is something about uh, uh, President George H.W. Bush. Uh, You know, he was the last president to carry out an invasion in uh, Latin America, for example. Mm. He was, uh, I think, totally... um, Uh, wrong-footed by the end of the Cold War. I think he didn't really see it coming and didn't seem to have any uh, responses. That was left to uh, President Clinton. Hmm. Uh, Of course, in turn, uh, uh, Presidents Clinton and the younger Bush and Obama, to some extent, have been totally sidelined by this uh, anti-globalization resistance uh, in the United States, which um, uh, they should have seen coming, but Hmm. clearly they didn't. So, I think it's uh, you can't really look to any of these presidents to provide a kind of um, guidance in
0: terms of where the US or the Republican Mm. Party or the presidency goes from here. Uh, James, uh, I'd be remiss to not ask you about the Clintons who you've covered ex- exclusively as, uh, as well. Uh, you know, Bill Clinton seems to be a guy that, that could get along with a lot of people, and he did get along very well with George H.W. Bush in his time uh, and other presidents, but uh, what about Hillary Clinton? Uh, how did they both play into sort of this this relationship with with different players in Washington and past presidents? It's an interesting
1: question. I think one of the interesting elements here is, is about... That the great personality difference between both Bill and Hillary Clinton. With Bill Clinton, we have someone who is very gregarious. Mm. He's from the South. He is a natural politician through and through. Hillary Clinton, unfortunately, um, is not, it must be said. She's a very, very smart woman, uh, very articulate um, and by all accounts, and anybody I've met when I was interviewing them for the book basically said, look, you know, if you get Hillary in small groups and one-on-one, she's very engaging and very warm, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but she just... Hasn't got that ability to convey that to a large uh, group effectively. Mm. In many ways, very similar to Al Gore, for example. Um, and you saw this play out in the election. Quite frankly, you know, Bill Clinton was saying many, many times, "Look, you know, we need to treat politics as an art." Hillary's whole approach is, is that it's a science effectively and mm. that lack of a personal connection I think in many ways was the difference when you figure that Hillary Clinton lost that election uh, by 70,000 votes across three states which is you know, nothing quite frankly mm. You know, following Bill Clinton's heed going into the last days of that debate when he was actually saying we need to get into Pennsylvania Wisconsin uh, Michigan uh, and he was ignored quite frankly mm. when you look at uh, the, how close that election was one wonders if they'd listened to the man they call the Big Dog. Might she now be president and Donald Trump back in Trump Tower, causing trouble for all concerned?
0: Mm. Well, we can only wonder. Uh, but I I do want to move us on now uh to Poland to for a discussion on climate change. Just briefly, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, better known as COP 24, is taking place in Katowice in Poland this week. The summit continues for another seven days, and very little of the news coming out of the conference is good. But the concern at this year's event doesn't seem to be about how to merely improve the health of the environment. It's more about whether we can actually still save it. Is the damage already done in effect? Victor, one factor highlighted at COP24 has been richer Nation's failure to pay their way in the global effort to curb environmental damages. Climate change is something you think we can buy our way out of
2: no not at all i mean if you're looking at emissions it's clearly down to a relatively small number of very large players mm. uh, china the united states india the european union and so on but in to get buy in you have to have the support of all the members of the united nations and indeed uh, some dependent territories that are not uh, in the United Nations. And to do that, the rich countries do have to come good on their promises of, uh, of I think, 100 um, uh, billion a year, isn't it, uh, to support uh, uh, these issues. Now, when it comes to the uh, uh, the developing countries, particularly the small island economies, there are two things really that they're concerned with. One is they want to do their bit to meet their nationally determined commitments uh, that they are required to put on the table like all other countries. And they need help with technology. They need to Uh, 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 find out what would work best in their particular environments but they also need money in order to deal with uh, climate change mitigation in other words dealing with the damage that's already happened Mm. um And that, in some ways, is the more difficult part, because you could see with the first part that it's actually a sort of win-win situation, because the rich countries have this technology, they are in a position to advance it, they can develop it in all sorts of ways, and it's very much in the interests of uh, poorer countries to have access to that. Mm. When it comes to climate change mitigation, in other words, building up flood defences and all this sort of thing, it's much more about money, unfortunately. And so, uh, to get the buy-in from the poorer countries, the rich countries countries will have to meet their Mm. competitors. It's not as bad as it looks. I mean, uh, it's not as if it's all or nothing. Mm. Um, uh, The commitments on the table towards that 100 billion are already quite substantial, uh,
0: but they're not quite there yet. Well, if we look at one of those very rich nations, uh, the U.S. we're recently seeing has been affected by catastrophic weather time and again, and yet uh, the administration of Donald Trump reluctant to engage with this issue. A report from Washington recently, however, did totally contradict Donald Trump's sort of denial of climate change. Uh, uh, James, what kind of disaster do you think it would it would take for for them to get actually engaged, or is that what will get them to be involved at all? Well, you're absolutely right. What we have here is a administration. Mm. The
1: administration officials in the various departments are saying quite clearly that there's a major problem that needs to be addressed. The problem is that you have a president at the very apex of power who is denying it, blaming on other things, etc, etc suggesting that it's all uh, down to uh, uh, state local level issues and local politicians and uh, finding any excuse quite frankly other than the prevailing views of his own administration. So I I, uh, I hate to say it but I think that quite frankly, as long as Donald Trump is in the White House, you're not going to get any sense of serious American leadership on this issue. Um, that's not to say that there aren't people in the United States who are working on this. But mm. as long as the president himself can continue to deny this and to, uh, uh, to uh, follow a, uh, a path which seems to be uh, uh, outdated at the very, very least, if not uh, uh, deliberately uh, avoiding the facts that are produced by his own administration, mm. it's difficult to see how a great deal is going to change in that basis.
0: Uh, Victor, would you take that up as as part of the biggest problem here, Uh, you know, if we look at America, that uh, conservatives often lean towards denial and and continue to politicize this issue?
2: Yes. uh, At the same time, we clearly, I think, cannot make progress on this issue if we look to any one country to exercise uh, leadership. This has to be an international treaty with legal obligations on individual states. Now, clearly, if the U.S. does withdraw uh, from the Paris Treaty, as it is uh, uh, due to do in the next uh, few years by 2020, that would be a major blow. Unless, of course, uh, the individual states and individual companies are somehow able to carry on with the process of uh, reducing emissions in the way that they have done up to now. Mm. Uh, But I think we are long past the stage when we should be looking to any one country, whether it's China or the United States or the EU or whatever it is. This has to be a binding international treaty
0: with everyone respecting their obligations and penalties for those that don't. Mm. Well, a week left at COP24. We shall see what comes out of that. But uh, finally tonight, just briefly, I wanted to take a look at Luxembourg, a country that might be about to do something very hands-on in this fight against emissions. They've made public transport across the whole country admittedly a fairly small country free every train, tram and bus this can only be good news I guess but can this be successfully upscaled to say a larger nation uh, James what do you think? Well I was reading this and I was I was
1: struck by an old concept which is that nothing that is free is free and mm. I, I would be intrigued to know uh, frankly um, what impact this has had on taxes mm. um, and the extent to which uh, this might be free at the point of usage but is this somehow going to be filtered into right. uh, either direct or indirect taxation across Luxembourg? Because to be honest about it, you know, people always look to governments for more, but everything has to be paid for and accounted. Mm. Um, we were just talking, for example, there about issues to do with uh, uh, with emissions, etc. And, you know, on the basis that all politicians are l- elected locally, uh, everything has to be paid for and mm. has to be elected locally. So I wondered whether uh, this really is as uh, much of a panacea as it appears initially, or whether they are going to be for example, tax increases, to uh, to accommodate mm. it. Uh,
0: well, perhaps a step in the right direction, uh, but could Luxembourg's plan work in a bigger nation, Victor? What do you think? Probably not in a nation, but yeah. I can see it
2: working in individual cities sure. or certainly parts of the transport system of individual cities. I mean, as James says, that there is a the problem that if you reduce the price of something, you increase the demand. So unless you uh, have some way of expanding the supply, then you end up replacing the price mechanism with a system of rationing or a ballot Mm. or what have you. So it it has to be done very, very carefully. But if you're in a situation like some cities, which are basically gridlocked, uh, Mm. because for one reason or another, people are not using public transport, either because they have all sorts of Uh, prejudices about it or because there is an inadequate public transport system then sometimes you have to do something dramatic Mm. in order to get people to change their way of thinking and there are good examples of that i mean curitiba in brazil is a very good example of a city which took a very progressive policy several decades ago towards public transport and it really worked it Mm. persuaded people
0: well, we shall have to see what happens there. But uh, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Victor Bulmer-Thomas, James Boyce, thank you very much, gentlemen, for joining us here at Majori House. Today's show produced by Tom Hall, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Gabriel De La Sante, our studio manager, Kenya Scarlett. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Daniel Beach. Goodbye.